Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. We'll get into some of the, the like the funny thing about like woke definitions of things here soon. When the the hit when uh, I will give you Guillermo del Toro's exact um, wording on what a fascist is, and you can describe to me who seems that way. But we'll get <laughs> to that in a minute. Okay. <clears throat> Um, the Criterion Collection DVD and Blu-ray release of the film has the spine number 666, a clever play on words with the film's title. Um, fables, uh, and, and this ties back when I said earlier, this is more like a, a fable slash fairy tale where, you know, the child's abandoned and, yeah. then, you know, they go on to, you know, do all that. The, but more so than that, and he, he stresses this so much in the commentary, that this is his ode to the gothic romance. Uh, and the, the, what he means by that is the, they're older and, and he, and this guy can, he knows his Gothic romance, you uh-huh. know, so we've discussed in the past, we've discussed in the past that Mike, you know, from the, the Rain Man network talks about, he's got a line that he says that when you know the structures and the ins and outs of a certain genre, then you can twist them and break them, you know, to, to, you know, kind of mess with the conventions, but only if you know the ins and outs well enough to be able to do it properly. If you listen to Guillermo del Toro talk about what a gothic romance is, this man knows way more than most people ever know in their life about it. So if he 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 mentions that he did twist the conventions of them because in the traditional gothic romance, it's the the ghost is always the bad guy. Okay, yeah. But in his film, his his film broke that convention. Santi is the tragic figure. Yeah. Jacinto is is the bad guy. So that's it, you know. And but he knows where to to break it, you know, because he knows what the, the genre is about. It's usually, I mean, if you hear him describe it, it's, there's always large architecture that all but swallows up the humans. So it emphasizes the, uh, you know, like almost, you know, like God or some otherworldly entity has more, you know, is, is more in effect than a Gothic romance than the people themselves. They're kind of like players in a, in a game that's outside their control because, and the structures that they're in kind of represent that because they're always in large mansions, castles, this, you know, the cistern in this movie stands yeah. in for that. Oh, yeah. And the cistern itself, I mean, <clears throat> looks like a big architecture that can swallow you up. Yeah. And so it's it kind of gives you that, that you know, feeling that there's, uh, you know, like it's just that, you know, there, there's other entities out there that are controlling everything, that's controlling fate, and you're just, you're living, you know, you're, you're a play in, inside of that. Yeah. Um, it, it usually shows how small man is in the cosmic scheme. It's usually repressive sexually, which plays into this movie yes. because, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, like Jacinto is like, you know, with Carmen, but like, you know, she's, I mean, you know, like Cesares is repressed, you know, sexually and they don't really bring, you know, he doesn't really mention anything. And Carmen obviously doesn't cause you know, the whole thing with her, I mean, and the younger man that she's with. Yeah. Um, and the, and the, and the Gothic romance always involves the element of the supernatural, which is Santi, you know, so there, that, you know, that plays into it. Um, I already mentioned that he blamed his Mexican heritage for his love of melodrama and then searching into this Don't blame it on your Mexican heritage. You like a good drama for your mama. Okay. Don't put it on us. Don't put it on our people, but he's 100% right. Um, this film and Hellboy feel the most personal to Del Toro because they contain so many references to his own childhood. Jesus um, Christ, in what way? <laughs> well, it's because in both movies, there's a child that's being abused. Okay. In, in Hellboy, it's it's Liz, you know, the girl who's got the psychic powers. And then in this one, it's Carlos. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I thought it was because of all the fucking scary shit going on. No, I mean, good Lord. Uh, 
somebody get that man a therapist. Fact, I know. Uh, Santi is Del Toro's favorite creature design of all the films that he's done. And that includes Pan's Labyrinth, which has some of the craziest and yeah. most out there, you know, designs, but he just loves the simplicity of Santi. I 100% uh, agree with that. I, you, cause Santi is, is like a definition of horror, but also empathy. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a sadness. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you can look in the show notes what I've got next. I put the, the, a couple of good pictures in here that I took when I was watching the movie that you can't really get a good look at until you see the production photos. Yeah. But those rust tears that are coming down, like you don't notice them in the movie so much, but when you see them like on full display, you really, you could tell he's like a, you know, you feel bad for this ghost. He's, yeah. He's constantly weeping, you know. By the way, I've done eyes like that around my hubby, the purplest bruised licking eyes. Um, fairly easy yeah. to do, actually, because <laughs> uh, I'm no makeup artist. Um, uh, and then the cracks, of course. That, oh, yeah. You know, they, I just I think that's fantastic how they did that. Um, Reverend, that's a butt so, crack. Why did you put that in here? That is so inappropriate. <laughs> it's Del Toro's butt crack. <laughs> oh, um, uh, Del Toro felt that a ghost was a reminder of the past. Uh, it's part of the gothic aesthetic. Yes. Uh, Santi is designed to look like a discarded porcelain doll that was left forgotten in a Aww. child's attic. And he did, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, he has the cracks, like we said, in his white porcelain skin. And Del Toro was very specific in how many cracks were apparent because he wanted the child to look more sympathetic and less scary. Yeah. And when they first came back with a design they had cracks all over the face and he said no, no and he, yeah. he they went back and forth and he kept saying no remove these remove these remove these and like because he wanted the, he wanted the child to be the one that you feel sorry for once you actually you yeah. know have more time with him and, and that's another reason this was something i figured noah would comment on the movie that you know like you're the, the ghost doesn't scare you after a certain point but it's yeah. deliberate he he wants you to spend time with Santi because he wants you to be like Carlos and get used to the ghost and to understand that the ghost is not there to scare you. The ghost is just trapped there because, you know, uh, I mean, he, you know, of the circumstances that he, that, that happened. Yeah. When um, I see, before I even knew the tragic story behind Santi, um, when I saw the cracks, I was like, that is where he got hit. And that's where his, that's what his skull looks like. So I almost, almost like his skin and his skull were kind of blended into one. I'm thinking that's how his skull was cracked, you know? Yes. It's like the, the skull made an appearance. It's like you can see through it and you can see what uh, through the skin and kind of see what's going on underneath. Yeah. That, so that's, I don't know, either way it works no matter how he meant it for it to be interpreted, you know? That's, that's a good point. Um, and there, there's references in the movie to, uh, to the cracks in his skin. There's a scene where Carlos is cracking an egg and it's kind of like a visual yeah. rhyme or representation of Santi, you know, in that sense. Cause you know, the way it fractures. Talk about an Easter um, egg. Uh, <laughs> uh, Del Toro cites the, the one, I, I love this part of it whenever I was listening to him talk in the commentary. He cites the one sentence horror story about the last man, uh, man in the world 
for his concept of what he believes a good horror story is. And if you don't know what that story is, it's literally just the last man in, war- in the world is sitting alone in his, you know, on his couch or whatever in, the, in his room with the door locked and, and there's a knock at the door. And that's the story. That's yeah. it. But I mean, but you put yourself in that context. Well, if there's all these dead bodies outside and he's the last one, who's knocking on the door, you know, and then it, you, the creep sets in whenever you start thinking about it. I don't like and that story. A, <laughs> and well, and I love that, that he mentions that because that to me is what creates a truly good horror story. I mean, I agree with him because, and, and his idea of a horror story is it's built by the context of what's happening, not just by the cheap scares of like a cat jumping out or something. I mean, you'll, you'll jump and fright, but it doesn't actually settle in on you and give you that creepy vibe, you know, like that, that horrific, you know, sense that you get if you build the atmosphere and the context around it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that this was mentioned on the, the uh, supplemental features that Santi's appearance is looks quite a bit like images of, of dead children that were circulated during the war as of like a propaganda thing. They started posting these like posters or the, you know, like, you know, missing, you know, like kid type posters around the, you know, or bulletins Yeah. and the kids and the images looked like Santi. They kind of had the black and, you know, like eyes, the, you know, kind of like the sunken in face, the, you know, the pale skin, they, you know, so, it, he, he's kind of built to look like ones that they actually circulated during war, which is interesting. Damn. Um, he did not want Santi to look like one of the undead. He needed, he wanted him to have more of a spiritual appearance. Okay. And that's the reason for the blood flowing from the wound and some other choices to make the character feel, uh, more surreal yeah in fact the name santi is a play on the word santos or saint yes um which is symbolized by the image of him standing on the water in one scene uh the blood flowing from his head wound gives kind of like a halo effect to him and uh the blood the black eyes with the red rims and rust tears flowing down his face give more like a you know a martyred saint type appearance you know um Interesting fact, uh, and I didn't realize this till they pointed out, the rust that he is crying matches the rust that's on the orphanage itself and the rust that's on the bomb. Oh, my God. So. That makes sense. Yeah, because I'm like, this looks familiar, but, like, why? Because at first I thought maybe it was just tears of the water, you know, like uh, the water coming through that he was in. Yeah. Yeah, and it, but it's just, the, I mean, it matches the rundown, rusty appearance of everything, that the, the world that they're living in, basically. Yeah, and then rust tears of, almost like those, <laughs> uh, I think you have it in your thing, though, um, like the statues you see of the angels or the saints. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, his skin actually has multiple color layers whenever you actually get right down and look at it. There's the white, you know, main layer that's for the porcelain, which is also thematic because to Del Toro, the absence of life, uh, absence of life equals absence of color. So that's the reason, you know, he, you know, he looks the way he does. Uh, the bl- there's black underneath to kind of accent- accentuate the fractures, make them stand out. There's yellow highlights to offset the rust tears. Mm-hmm. And then there's green underneath that to give a sense of decay. So, like, wow. you look at the edges of the paint, you can actually see, like, the decayed, like, green settling in and, and, like, the jaws and stuff. Oh, my God. Um, 
he didn't want Santi to have feet originally because in most ghost stories, the spirits don't have them. However, he didn't have the budget for wire work or CGI to remove the feet. So he worked the feet into the sign. And that's why you got the scene where Carlos knocks over the water. And then you see the, you know, the ghost, the footprints in the water kind of walking away from it. Yeah. Uh, he, he did that because he's like, well, if I got to have feet, then I'm yeah. going to make, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to use them basically. And that is so funny. That is such a Mexican thing that the spirits don't have feet. <laughs> And feet are very important in some cases because, like, for instance, there's this old tale of a woman who is an evil entity and she lures men. But you know she's she's not so much a ghost. She's just an evil entity. And you know that she's uh, if you pay attention to her feet, they're backwards. And if they're backwards, she's the bad person. Oh, OK. So that's, it's that that's is, interesting. Yeah. And Mexicans are obsessed with feet. Well, that's also like that reminds me of what Baba Yaga because she's got like chicken feet or something. If you look at her feet, and that's like the sign that you can tell that you know she, there's something you know really messed up with her. If you, but by the time you see that, you're probably dead anyway. Yeah, so, <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, he didn't have the budget to give Santi the skeleton appearance beneath the skin during every scene, so the compromise was to make him appear that way in Moonlight. What I'm talking about, if you and you watch it, I love this effect. Whenever there's the, the nighttime scenes with Santi and the moonlight shines across his face, you can actually, the way they made the skin look, you can yeah. actually see the bones underneath and, yes. and he looks skeletal. That's really cool, actually. Uh, there's a subtle sound of water squishing when Santi moves, which I, I need to go back and watch because I didn't catch that, I didn't, but yeah. that's apparently a thing. Uh, he whispers in an almost uh, asthmatic way to use the sound to further express his vulnerable feeling uh, and make you feel sad for him. And and what and Del Toro actually lost his voice from illness toward the end of the shoot, and he recorded some of Santi's lines with his weakened voice to wow. add the asthmatic sound. <laughs> So he said whenever you hear that kind of like that wheezing, raspy stuff, that's actually a little bit of his voice modulated in with a child. That so reminds me of the changeling that. a little bit, too. <laughs> uh, Del Toro wanted boys at the orphanage to have crew cuts, but the budget made it difficult to make Santi look the way he wanted with more scalp showing. So they settled on a bowl cut look, which is appropriate to the period, uh, to cover up the scalp and save some on the makeup budget. Okay. Uh, Mario Bava was an inspiration for the use of color in this movie. Uh, colors are coded to the characters, and certain colors are saved for dramatic effect. Along with the sets and costume design, the almost sepia tone color palette established the 1930 yes, setting. Yes, for sure. The wall behind Santi at the end of the hall that you mentioned earlier is the, as he is stalking Carlos is actually matched perfectly to Santi's skin uh, completely mm -hmm. because it's got the same colors that Santi's skin has. So it's got the same decayed appearance that Santi does. Um, yeah, that stood out a lot. Red for blood scenes only. Wow. Um, and, the, and yeah, there's the only red in this movie whenever it's blood. Like okay. that's, the, that's the only time that he allowed any red in the movie. And the rest of the movie is earth tones, like during the day, gold, brown, and rust, and at night, it's bluish tones, you know, to kind of give that, you know, an effect, kind of like moonlight, bluish white for lighting. Yeah. Uh, Sergio Leone was the, the inspiration for how the daytime scenes were filmed and the characters' uh, interactions during the day. That's why you get the Western aesthetic, because he was actually basing it upon those spaghetti Westerns. Oh, so okay. that, that matches what we talked about. Um, <clears throat> Jacinto is meant to be the person you fear in the film, not the ghost, which is like I said, an inversion of the traditional Gothic. Cause it's usually the spirits, the one that's, you know, always the, 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 you know, the, 
the one the protagonist has to deal with. Yeah. Uh, it started as a, now this is interesting. It started as a story that was meant as a thesis for Del Toro's screenwriting class, but the original film was much different than what we see now. It was originally set in Mexico instead of Spain. Yeah. And the theme was a region of mountain called the Devil's Backbone, which was supposed, to, which is lore, uh, in lore, is supposed to be the corpse of Satan after an epic fight between Lucifer and God, and Lucifer was cast to Earth. And the orphanage was supposed to be located located at the base of the mountains, and or the corpse of Satan, in other words, and his, and his influence was extending out from his corpse and affecting those uh, children who were in the orphanage. Um, Del Toro says that the story was so different that it, you know he'll never get around this because he's always got all something on his you know back burner to yeah. do. But he said that he it's actually so different he could revisit it and make a whole movie out of it and call it you know like it's like a a redux of the devil's backbone that set in his original Spine setting. of the devil. <laughs> <clears throat> it was much later whenever he met with his friend Antonio, uh, the trash man, as yeah. we said earlier. <laughs> Tres Horas. Uh, that they took the base idea of the orphanage and completely built a ghost film from the ground up. Okay. Um, <clears throat> In the film we have, The Devil's Backbone is a reference to the Spina Bifida, which is, you know, those yeah. uh, pickled punks, as he likes to call them, that Dr. Cesares is like, got in his, uh, you know, his room. And the weird thing about that is that um, that that's actually, uh, Del Toro was doing a tour in France with his wife, and they came across the pickled punks, <clears throat> and he found the formula uh, there and he read the the ingredients in it that they used to pickle them and he's like this actually would make a very good rum and he turned to his wife and he said wouldn't you like to drink this and she looked at him and said you're gross stop that and he oh said my oh, God. I'll put it in a movie and he did he put it in this movie and the reason it's in there the way it is gross uh, um, this rep uh, the references of the the children of spina bifida are actually references back to the children of the movie that we're following because they're all marked with tragedy like the fetuses are marked with their disfigurement um a repeating theme throughout the movie is being trapped uh the living are trapped within the relationships and the physical location of the orphanage the idea that a ghost is like a bug trapped in amber factored into the way that santi was presented which i really like that concept of a ghost yeah and uh, to reinforce these themes visually, arches are used throughout the architecture to trap uh, the humans and ghosts within the frame. So that, you know, that kind of adds to the fact that they're kind of like, you know, like the arches are a permanent fixture over their heads, kind of just like trapping them there visually. Yeah, but when it, like, I feel like, okay, within the building, but there's arches throughout the, the whole architecture in general. So wouldn't it technically trap them in like the room or the location that they're in? Well, I think it's just the overall feeling of being. I have some questions. (laughs) (laughs) But I I agree with you. I mean, there's but there's also an arch as you're leaving the orphanage. So there's the there's even that trap going outside of it. I mean, like Hotel California, man, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. I don't know, man. I saw some people leaving. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that here in a second. Uh, the scene where Jacinto is speared was accomplished by making a life-size mold of the actor wow. using a rubbery skin-like material and then stabbed through, as we've seen in the film. They actually, yeah. I mean, they completely covered this guy in this stuff. Like, I mean, he and they, they basically made a whole mold of his entire body. Because, yeah. 
Well, they had to because I mean the way that it was filmed. I mean, you would have got the same effect, and and they made they were specifically wanted him to get stabbed in the armpit because just the I mean, there's something about being stabbed in that spot that's so vulnerable that yeah. like just it, it that's instinctively painful to humans to think about. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Del Toro used non-traditional camera work to capture the child actors in the films, and by, what I mean by that is since he wanted them to act like children. Uh, he knew that their actions couldn't always be scripted, so he filmed a lot more coverage scenes, meaning he had a lot more cameras on when they were just doing their own thing in the background so that he could get more images to edit in later and work into the film so that it looked like they were, you know, naturally playing with each other whenever they, you know, when those scenes that called for that. fucking genius, dude. <laughs> it's the simplest things, I swear, sometimes that make for the best scenes. Yeah, and I mean, and it adds to the feeling of the movie because, I mean, you can tell when the kids are acting like stiff and, you know, like too grown-up-like because, I mean, like I said, the ring, the American version specifically, but, I mean, I don't know. I can't I can't levy that against the Asian one because I know, like, you know, Japanese kids are expected to, you know, uh, you know, function in a different way around their, you know, like around adults, but there's no way that an American kid's going to act like that kid did in that movie. I mean, it just, there was, it was a natural feeling. Yeah. Uh, Fernando Tielve was given the uh, homework assignment of coming up with his character's biography of Carlos. Wow. And this was to add authenticity to the character and give real motivations from a child's point of view. So he actually, all that stuff about the slugs and all that, that was from the, the actor. He was the one like, well, I think he'd be in the comic books. I think he would like, you know, and Del Toro said, all right, that sounds good. We'll do that. Oh, wow. How, like... <laughs> I mean, as a kid, could you fucking imagine? Well, and Gamma Del Toro wasn't that big at the time, but you're one, you're in a movie. That's <clears throat> completely exciting as it is already for a kid, depending on what this actor did prior. I don't know if he was already in a film prior to this. Two, you get to tell him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you it, he you know you get to have some say so in the character. I think that's pretty neat. I mean, because most kids don't. You get that with adult actors because they get to bring their like you know their thoughts and interpretations of the role. But you never see it with kids because they don't have. Generally, they're not given that much leeway because I mean the director either doesn't feel like they'll do it justice and you know or bring anything meaningful to the table, or they you know like the kids maybe don't feel comfortable enough to do it. So yeah. it's interesting that he that they worked out for both of them that way. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, the theme of Dr. Cesare's impotence extends to his entire characterization. He's no, he's not just impotent in the sense that he can't please Carmen, but he's also, if you look at what he actually does in the movie, he's impotent in the fact that he does, he's inactive through all, I mean, through his life at least. He, he doesn't really solve anything or, or intervene. It's only whenever he's a spirit that he actually helps the kids, and even then, they have to do the, the, the fighting on their own. He just merely gives them a way to get out of the room that they're locked in. Yeah. Well, you know, it's at the end of the movie. He finally gets hard, but. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I didn't even think about it that. It took rigor mortis for him to actually yeah. get stiffy. Is that what you're trying to say? And uh, maybe, you know, it, he stayed behind for Carmen maybe for one last hurrah. Okay. Well, maybe. I mean, they, he, you know, he was able to do some things then. Let me show you what I'm working with now. Um, and that's the reason that um, Del Toro wanted that actor, uh, Frederico, to play the part because he'd already worked with him and knew he could do this. But he, he knew that since the character didn't, uh, you know, actually have any development, you know, story-wise that way, he needed to be somebody who could show that he was his development was all internal. 
and he knew that that actor could pull it off. And I feel like that he is a good actor in this movie. Like you, I mean, you can tell yeah. a lot of, I mean, you know, like he conveys a lot of emotion without saying it. Yeah. You know? uh, it was important for both Del Toro and Eduardo Noriega that Jacinto have scenes in the film that humanize the character. Uh, they didn't want him to be a cartoon one-sided villain. Yeah. And, that, and his scenes in particular with Conchita uh, are meant to uh, show his fears and motivations. Uh, even his scene where he kills Santi shows him scared after accidentally pushing Santi into the column. It's not like he, you know, like he felt good about it. I mean, you can still see that. I mean, he, he, he knew that he fucked up. So, I mean, he's not, you know, he's bad, but he's he's still got some humanity to, to him. Yeah, you know, one thing I didn't get in terms of Santi and, um, and, um, why do I keep forgetting his name? Jacinto. Jacinto? Yeah, was at one, and there's one scene where, um, where Santi is telling Carlos, bring, you know, brings, uh, Jacinto to me. And, but I'm like, he had been there most, majority of the time. Why couldn't you get your paws on him prior? Uh, well, I think that he needed to, he he could get uh, that Santi wasn't strong enough because that that's that's one nitpick that I could have that I was anticipating Noah to bring up. That's the reason I made fun of it at the beginning of the intro. The fact that you know you've got this ghost kid, but there's the scene where he doesn't like you know Carlos has locked himself inside the broom closet, linen closet, and mm-hmm. like you know, and the ghost just appears outside and looks through, yeah. and, which is a nice jump scare, but like he doesn't actually you know just walk through it like you would expect a ghost to do. And it's almost like Santi is not like he's not experienced enough as a spirit or powerful enough to be able to actually do stuff like that. So I think that his 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 fear of like what you know what he can actually manipulate is like localized to near his body. So I, I think that he needed other people to get uh, Jacinto that close, and Jacinto either due to fear or whatever was never going to set foot near that water unless he yeah. or, you know close enough that water unless he uh, you know got. A, situation where he couldn't get away from it well you couldn't see from the camera angles but what had actually happened in that scene where the ghost had looked through the keyhole was that it was an archway uh closet door so he couldn't get he couldn't pass through no i mean that, there's <laughs> there's always well the keyhole itself was an arch so i mean That's there's true, that yeah. whole image too um <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't have a problem with the fact he couldn't go through the door because there's no, several movies that have ghosts that, that can't. But, I you know, I, I just figured that'd be something Noah would have brought up. He's like, this ghost can't even fucking travel through doors. Well, you know, like. the, you know what's was cool about that, though? It, to, for me, it was scarier because it's like, okay, when is this ghost going to fucking go away? Like, when you walk out that door, are you going to be safe? Yeah, and then you think it's like okay, it's it's been enough time, and then he looks out and it's like, no, it's fucking Oz right there. He's still around. Yeah, surprise, motherfucker. <laughs> Surprise! I got you now, bitch. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. I, I I mean, it made sense to me. I mean, within the context of the movie, I don't I don't think that he violated any of his rules because I don't think it ever showed Santi dissolving through anything necessarily. I mean, I feel like he always tried to open things when he went through them. I'm hold on. I'm I'm pondering on that. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't even fucking notice that. Because, I mean, there, there's never a time where I, I really remember him walking through anything. Mm, it's like no. he appears places, but yeah. he doesn't necessarily. And I guess you could argue that he could disappear and reappear inside the room. But that's, that's true, another yeah. thing that Del Toro was bringing up is that Sant- he didn't want Santi to be the villain. So he didn't want him to actually aggressively go after Carlos. No, he was yeah. trying to, you know, he was just trying to like tug on his shoulder and say, listen, I need your help. 
you know, like, well, please. And coming from, you know, someone who believes in things spiritually and everything, it, it is it is a big thing about being invited. Now, you don't necessarily have to let an evil entity in, but I think ghosts in general or spirits that maybe mean well and really do just need help, if they know they're not invited or they're unwelcome in any way, they won't push it, you know, generally. So it's like the energy. It's like, oh, this energy builds up a block. You don't want me to come near you, so I physically can't. It's not that they don't want to, you know, and definitely not for a lack of trying. It's just it's almost like a physical, I, I can't. You have this wall built up, and until you let that down, I can't let you know what I need or blah, 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 you know? I mean, that's a very good point because they always make, you know, a point in saying any kind of paranormal stuff that, you know, you can have receptive energy, meaning you're willing to let spirits in and you got, you know, and that can be dangerous depending upon what spirits you're talking about. So there has to be a reverse of that, you know, just, yeah. you know, by, you know, so if you put a repulsive, you know, like, you know, like signal out there, like I do not want you around, you know, that's almost like a defense against them. They can't cross at that point yeah and i think on the contrary people who just flat out just don't believe in it they they just don't have any barriers up because they don't believe that they need a barrier you know so that's why yeah, you hear the, the, these ghost stories everyone's like well how did they they didn't even believe in that shit how did they invite a ghost in no they didn't invite them they just didn't have any they didn't have a, a house protecting over them you know that would be like hey you I can't also, come here but I feel like some people are so skeptical that they, they actually have a permanent barrier up because they can't experience anything. And, you know, you see that in a lot of horror films uh, where, the, like, say the husband, I mean, what's in the orphanage? I mean, the, we already talked oh, about yeah. it. The husband, the doctor, never, he doesn't believe his wife. He's like, you're fucking insane. There's yeah. nothing happening here. And that's because he's so, you know, against the idea. of, And it's only at the end of it, whenever he's went through all the laws, that he accepts it a little bit. And he actually gets like a, there's just a hint of, you know, his wife is, she opens the door up. Yeah. You know that she's there, you know. Yeah. And, and he paid the price. You know what? The husbands never <laughs> believe their Mexican wives. They always think we're crazy. <laughs> and we are, but not when it comes to the spirits. <laughs> But then there's also the the other films like the Amityville Horror, where the the husband doesn't necessarily. I mean, he's not a he's not a skeptic uh, totally, but he doesn't necessarily believe either. And so he's he's more prone, like you said, to getting the be the one that's possessed and ends up hurting the family because he won't admit that he's wrong. First of all, which you, you can argue whatever you want to about men and that, but like, but I mean, he also you know won't like. I mean, he won't admit there's any supernatural until he until every other proof has like been given him that's like you're wrong motherfucker this ain't right you've got to accept it now and then he finally changes his ways yeah too little too late sir <laughs> too late to apologize um, uh, getting back to this, the bomb represents the Civil War, that the Civil War has made its way inside of the walls of the orphanage itself. Yeah. Uh, it's it's actually a bit of a historical cheat because bombs at the time were much smaller and dropped from windows in the plane. It wasn't until later in World War II whenever they developed the bomb shoots and the larger bombs, but Del Toro, he allowed that cheat, that historical cheat just because he thought that it was more impressive visually to have it drop, you know, the way it did and how large it was. It was like, you know, it it's, I mean, you cannot see it whenever you're in the courtyard so it's always there just like the war is always there uh even if it's in the background yeah um for, and this was actually there's a whole special on this from a spanish civil war scholar sebastian faber on the uh the uh criterion disc 
So the Franco regime lasted until 1975. So when when this happened in the 30s, Damn. it didn't end until the 70s. Damn. Uh, at the time that the movie was made, there was concern. There was actually, it, you know, and it was made in 2001, mind you, only, you know, just 30-some years, less than 30 years after the, the fascists had, you know, actually they went back to, you know, a republic again. There was concerns at the time that the Spanish democracy was on the verge of collapse or going into another civil war. So it was almost like this movie was made at a time when history was repeating itself. Wow. Um, which ties into the idea of a ghost being a tragedy that keeps repeating. It's oh, yeah. almost like the war itself was repeating. Damn. Uh, the, the war resulted in two distinct divisions. You had the Democratic rebels who took control of the mines uh, and then the Republicans who took control of the banks. And that's the reason why Carmen was so obsessed with the gold because they didn't have any money. It, oh, the, yeah. the, it was the Franco regime that had all the money and, and what money they had, they were running out quick trying to finance, you know, the soldiers and the food and stuff necessary to fight the war. Um. The end of the movie represented the beginning of the fascist regime. Thematically, it's a bit it's a bit at odds with a happy escape of the boys from the orphanage because even though they're escaping from the orphanage, they're escaping into a country that has fallen. I mean, when they when they leave the orphanage, they they've lost the war. So, um, and it could be representative of the Spanish people themselves uh, after having witnessed so many deaths and loss of their leadership. You know as in the boys in the orphanage lost all their leaders, Carmen and Dr. Cesares. Uh, they're metaphorically entering a time of being in the desert lost, you know, yeah. kind of like the, you know, in the, in the Bible. So well, that's it's, not a happy, so it's not happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> when you and look at it that I way. I didn't think it was when they were leaving. Yes. I saw that they were leaving, but I, I don't have an explanation for this, but I thought they were already dead. And technically, they were already dead. They were so either probably soon to be dead, or eventually. It, it was. It was almost like it was seeing the future of yeah. They're they're not stuck in this place, but they're dead. You know. And the, I don't know why I thought that when I was seeing the end. The 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 eerie thing about whenever he was talking about this is he said if you look at the time that the boys would have got out of that that orphanage in 39 versus in 75 whenever they would have you know you know saw their country come back mm -hmm. they would have been 50 some years old so it would have taken them 50 i mean it would have taken them i mean they would have been that old from the time that they were kids to their you know till they actually saw like that they were no longer in the desert basically dang <laughs> um so it's it's a very very bittersweet ending. Yeah, the fact that they get away from Jacinto just to, you know, go, go to where they did. It. Yeah, but people who don't who don't know historically what's actually going on that are not paying attention, and that's usually someone like me. They're like, oh, they got away. Good for them. Okay, where are they gonna go though? Even if there wasn't a war going on, where are they gonna go? They're an orphanage. Okay, I mean, like those were already bad places back in the day to begin with. Okay, they might the, get adopted. They might get put into some kind of slavery of sorts. Mm -hmm. Oh God! And uh, and they, you know, so they. I mean, yeah, and they didn't have any family left. Yeah. So who who's going to take them in? They were basically going to be. I mean, 
the the best that they could do is to be like those kids from the I hate to say this, but that Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome yeah. when kids are living out in the plane where they're doing all the weird stuff about the before times and you know and Lord all of the Flies. You know, like, yeah, literally the Lord of the Flight. We're going right back to it. I mean, and I think that might be why that that stuck with me so much. Yeah, it's these boys are on their own at that point. I mean, and you and we've read a, we know in that novel what happens when boys are left to their own. Like, I mean, it's it's not necessarily the best when they're left to their own devices that way. They should have played um, uh, the sun. I'll come out tomorrow <laughs> at the end <laughs> to give that warm fuzzy feeling that nothing was gonna go wrong. Yeah. Little orphan Annie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the lesson that the students listen to about the mammoth plays into the ending of the film, which I find so neat that he worked that in there that way. So when she's telling them about how, like, she's like, so how do you take down a mammoth or a mammoth, as she says, which I, I just I find that such an interesting way of saying that. But, like, but it's, you know, she talks about how you got this big creature, you know, and you got these weaker creatures, the humans trying to take it down. Well, they all, they have to work together. And that's literally what happens with Jacinto. They've got this big guy who can outpower any of them individually, but when they're all work together to trap him and to attack him with sticks, sharpened sticks, which is, goes back to the mammoth fighting again. That's how they take him down. Yeah, actually. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't, I did not take those lessons i did not take that lesson and put it into what they were doing at the end of the I film i i gotta admit it was in the special features for our, and i was like oh my god that is so good like i would have never thought about that hmm. um <clears throat> jacinto actually represents the fascist element that's within the orphanage um and in the sense that he's perfect in body and, and self-assure of himself just like the you know the people who are taking over the country were dead set they knew they were right so that's yeah. the reason they were fighting the war to begin with uh, however, he does lack uh, he does lack uh, heart and is lonely, uh, and that's based on Del Toro's reading of like serial killers and how loneliness factors into their motives. He goes on a bit, you know, a big thing during the commentary talking about how like you know if you look at most serial killers, they it's either because their mother didn't love them or you know like there there was a family element missing. But the loneliness, you know, there's a loneliness there that that factors into them later becoming the monsters that they become. And he, he played that into Jacinto. Um, <clears throat> the rebels in the movie all have some kind of physical infirmity. Uh, Cesaris is impotent, like we said. Carmen is crippled, missing her leg. And the boys are all physically immature. Meaning that, you know, like, you know, not like powerful enough to take on Jacinto, like we said, by themselves. They have to join together to overcome their failings in order to actually fight against the, you know, the, the fascist element. Okay. So. <laughs> But Casares, which Cesares, whatever, but <laughs> I'm pronouncing it the way it's supposed to be. Um, okay, he's impotent, but, but that's Cesaris, not, there you go. He's not like he that's not like impairing him in any ways other than the fact that he can't bang a check. Maybe emotionally. Well, I I mean I get emotionally, but I mean, come on. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, he he also like when he's given a moment there where he could have stood up and did something. I mean, that shows his impotence in other por portions That's of true. his life. He's kind of a coward. Like he when he sees the rebels, including one that he worked with, the tutor, you know, that actually brought Carlos there, you know, pleading with him. It's you know, like he just like nope, don't know these bastards. I'm I'm moving on. You know, <laughs> pop them in the back of the head. You know. Oh my God, that's pretty funny though. Um, <clears throat> so here's. 
you can decide your your own version of this. This is what fascism is described by Del Toro. It's antisocial and disenfranchised of humanity. It's asserted by people who believe they are superior and in possession of the truth. And it can divide the world into, and, they, and it's by people who can divide the world into exclusively black and white and make it their sole purpose to erase what is black and unfair. I, I feel I'm, like if you applied that modern times, no, just, I'm going to leave it there. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, that's, I mean, I know he's speaking a different language and I know how, you know how like you'll use the term, uh, they're very black or white, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and you can, and it's not to describe necessarily color, but it's just to describe the different contrast between the people. I know that's what he's trying to say. It's just not translating very well. Well, I mean, even if you don't take it from that, I'm just reading it. It's just like, okay, uh, you know, modern times. Yes. The people who know that they're right and what they believe, everybody else is evil or are in the wrong. Yeah. And the people who you know it's like the side that that is more like that is not necessarily the side that thinks that it's on the right side of history. I'm just saying. That. Yeah. So. The, it's funny because it's the side <laughs> that are being his definition of fascist are calling everyone else fascist. Yes, exactly. It's, I mean, the, I just thought it's funny because everything about them follows his definition of what fascism is, but they're calling everybody else the fascist. Oh, my God. <clears throat> the scenes were Casares. Is that how you say that Casares, it's, it's yeah. pronounced? Is uh, saying goodbye to Carmen after the bombing was uh, actually an addition improvement by the actor. That whole uh, idea of him reciting poetry was something he added in the moment. Because uh, he felt that the original dialogue, him and Del Toro both felt it was too cold, and it was oh. just kind of like you know, too matter of fact. Well, Carmen so was a was whore, like, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he was still a cuck, and he still loved her, so he oh. still had to, you know. Okay. That. Well. Good luck with her body, sir. <laughs> Uh, and, and Dotoro actually said each take was more affecting to him and heartfelt than the last. And he said he actually found himself moved to tears. Aww. The funny part is, is that he said the whole thing was almost ruined by quote unquote dead child in the background because you know <laughs> he's got these, these kid actors who are doing their own thing. He said one actor rose up who was supposed to be dead in the middle of that or the most intense reading that uh, Frederico did. <laughs> and the, when the character was supposed to have died, and he said the kid was even bold enough to tell Del Toro that, oh, my character was in extreme a agony and was it was in the process of dying, but not quite there yet. Whoa, okay. Del Toro, <laughs> Del Toro said that he was so impressed by the boldness and the quick-witted response that he didn't behead the actor right there on the spot. <laughs> I don't know who that child is, but I love them. So you got this, you got very impassioned, like Del Toro sitting there crying. Also, this kid rises up that's not supposed to be. It's like, what the fuck? And the kid's like, oh, well, I was in agony. He's like, fair play, kid. Fair it's like play. that guy on TikTok, that teacher on TikTok, and he's like, why are you up? Uh, I love that little, uh, whatever he mentioned that, though. I thought that was good. Oh, my God. Um uh, when showing the scenes of how Santi died, the uh, or Santi, the uh, orphanage is shown to have more supplies, meaning it was more had more food and was more prosperous. And it was almost as if the death of of Santi uh, brought about like almost curse on the place. Yeah, that's whenever things started happening to him. A plague of sorts. Um, 
Which reminds me because, I mean, a lot of people knew about the gold and everything. And did I did I take it wrong that this orphanage was mostly of rich kids? They were, they seemed to be more well-to-do kids from okay. the area. Like the, the rebels that were a little bit more affluent, they sent their kids off before the, the real tax happened. Okay. And I'm assuming that they paid a pretty penny. And that's where I thought the gold was coming from, that they were, they were hoarding. It, I think it was. I don't know that it was ever implied or it ever actually said, but I think that's what they were implying that the gold that the gold that they had was the last little bit that the people had spent, like bringing the kids in there. Yeah, um, which they had quite a bit of it. Um, and then that being said, I know that the country is in disarray and there's a war going on. Um, I take it. I mean, maybe there's just no supplies coming to them. I mean, usually orphanages are state funded or funded by the government in some way, and. Um, the government was a little preoccupied at the moment. Yeah, the government was actually taking over already, and like the yeah. government that was, it wasn't one that actually wanted that orphanage to be functioning, anyways. Wow! And not only that, because these these people were all going to die there no matter what, because it's not like they could take this gold. They had plenty of it. Well, they had enough, anyways. It's not like they could take it and go just buy supplies for the orphanage. There's no fucking no, Costco they- nearby. No, and they, and but they also showed that that nearby town, which is where they were getting their supplies, was overrun. You know, yeah. at least toward the end by the fascist element. So that even if they did have like back back room areas where they could get that, which I'm sure they still had. I mean, it was that they really had to tread lightly in order to be able to uh, to be able to function. There yeah. was a scene, however, that they showed how they got some of their stuff, and that was the you know Dr. Casares saying that he sold his rum. Yeah, as nasty as it is <laughs> to the local people, because they claim that it would, you know, cure their remedies or, or their their ills, I guess, as it were. Yeah, and I mean, as gross as it is, yes, but cultures have some weird fucking beliefs, man. <laughs> well, I mean, if you go back and you look at some like the home folk remedies on how to like cure stuff, a lot of times you're wrapping wounds in like pure dirt and mud. Oh I yeah, mean, so. I mean, it's, you know, it would stop the bleeding for sure. But yeah. then you're, you know, they didn't know that bacteria existed in that dirt either. So Ugh. you had that to worry about. Um, One other thing, I mean, before, I mean, this isn't the notes. I don't think I put it in there. But all the uh, good characters had like C names, Carlos, Casares, Carmen, and all the bad people had J or, well, semi-bad yeah. people had J names like Jaime, yeah. Jacinto, you know, that sort of thing. Those sound like H's. Um, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm Jamie. Joking. Yeah. Jacinto. Okay, fine. <laughs> Jacinto. It reminds me of like pinto beans. Um, the flies that follow, and I love this element to his character as a ghost. The flies that follow Casares uh, after his return as a ghost are digital. Um, and I, I mean, I, I just love the fact that they did that. Like that was a tie in that you knew it was him coming back cause his character had the flies already landing on his dead body. And then oh, later wow. you saw the, the figure walking, the, the flies were following his, you know, spirit. Um, Del Toro actually tried to get the same effect in his earlier film, Kronos, but didn't have the budget for digital effects. So they actually had a fly expert come in and, uh, and apply concoction to the same actor, Frederico, uh, Frederico Lupe, Loopy, uh, that was basically liquid shit. Oh. And this is how this is how Del Toro described it to the actor, and then they released thousands of flies. Immediately after releasing the flies, they all found a small hole somewhere in the set and flew away. 
And Del Toro explained, uh, of course they all flew away. It smells like shit in here. <laughs> what the hell? That actor, I hope he was compensated. <laughs> Uh, I hope so too. I mean, but in this film, they didn't cover him in the, the in the shit uh, pace. They uh, they made it, you know, at least they had the budget for digital flies. <laughs> okay, well, thank God, because Jesus. Uh, yeah, that, the some of the stuff people do to get this stuff to happen in real life. Um, Del Toro told the composer, "This is what I was talking about earlier, not to write music for the scene where Jacinto is attacked by the boys." And he, and the reason for that is he feels that whenever uh, an, a director puts music in a scene, he's he confers like a sense of affirmation that he agrees with whatever is happening in that scene. Uh, now I don't know if all directors think this way, but at least that's how Del Toro's thought is. So he wanted to remain ambiguous as to where he wanted to believe that Jacinto deserved that particular painful death. So that's why it's completely silent when it comes to music, because it's like, well, I, you know, as a director or God basically of the scene, he stepped back and said, I'm taking myself out of this. He dies that you can decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, so go at it. <laughs> um, I, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, I never thought about that, but I yeah. mean, I do know a lot of directors use like, you know, uh, I mean, you definitely see it in like some of the Marvel movies, like whenever a bad guy's about to get their comeuppance, they always do the swelling heroic music to oh, yeah. confirm that the heroes are in the right for attacking this person. So. Hmm. Okay. Um, and he, obviously he clearly puts a lot of thought into what he does. So. I mean, it's kind of cool. He, it obviously means a lot to him, too. Yeah, I mean, he when you hear him describe his, I mean, he puts a lot of thought into, like, the meanings of, how, of like, just even the scenes themselves, but, like, the music and everything. Yeah. And it's just kind of, and it's really, it's really cool to hear because, I mean, you, you get a lot more artistic sense out of it than just somebody who's like, all right, I got paid $3 million for this. Let's get this fucker out of here. You yeah. Know, like, you don't get that, you know. Um. There is a goof in this movie, though. Uh, the weight of the gold that Jacinto attached to his belt and eventually proved his undoing was actually too much for his pants to have actually held up in real life if he was attaching that many gold bars to it. So he would have been like sans pants toward the end of the oh, movie. Oh, yeah. He would have. That's hella <laughs> um, funny. Uh, so just a quick tangent before we get into the changeling, do you want to discuss any kind of things about the orphanage since we already kind of brought it up and, you know, it kind of has links to this that in thematic ways, I feel like if nothing else, I thought the orphanage was very, um, blue in tone. And now that we know about these movies, I feel like the orphanage could have just been like, they moved into the orphanage that we just witnessed in this film, you know? <laughs> Well, if and I, I watched the orphanage because it'd been a while since I seen it, you know, just to kind of you know have some kind of comparison because I couldn't remember remember a whole lot about it. That movie, there's a reason that it's tone blue is because that movie's all about grief and sadness. Oh my god! I mean, that oh, movie it's is sad such a fuck. sad movie. Yeah, and it's funny because like, you know, as a mom, and and moms have a different attachment to their sons than they do their daughters. It's not that, you know, I, I love my daughter any less. But, like, it's different with sons. And I'm like, what does it – I couldn't tell you what kind of decision I would make as that mom, honestly. Because yeah, clearly she makes a very strong decision at the end of the movie, you know? A very strong decision. I feel like, if anything, like, I'd be like, okay, we're going to stay in this house, but – these are the times we're going to play hide and seek. You need to chill the fuck out when mom's asleep. Um, and I will put a line of salt to prevent you from coming into my room if you're going to keep these naughty games up. <laughs> um, I, 
the thing that got me about that movie is just the fact that I, I did not realize. I mean, you know, it's also got the uh, it's it's even got the the fantasy or I mean the uh, you know the the old fairy tale element that we was talking about because instead of Hansel and Gretel, this is Peter Pan. I mean, that literally, yeah. it's the reverse Peter Pan movie. It's like you've got a grown up Wendy who's got the children, you know, the boys from Neverland who can never age. Well, uh, there's a girl in there too, but like I mean, you know, so like she, it, I mean. There's a reason that it keeps coming up throughout the movie, you know, the the whole, you know, story of Peter Pan. It's because the movie is that, but it's in reverse. Yeah. Um, oh, God. So going into the orphanage, not a ton, but yeah, the blue tone. It was blue, though. Like, it feels like it was blue in the house, but on the outside, because it was kind of near... I feel like an ocean of sorts or yeah, it's, it's right beside the ocean and yeah. the lighthouse. And it's not as bluish you know, tone when they're outside. It feels more lively when they're outside the house. It, it does. There's more colors outside. Yes. I don't know. You know, I'm sure there's some intent behind that, you know, that there's happier memories for her outside. Cause I mean, if you go and you remember the beginning of the movie, that's where they played all the time was outside. So maybe that's why it's lighter outside is because there's more happiness. I the, think you know, so. Cause involved. that's what it feels like, you know? Um, but there's that whole thing about the kids got, you know, HIV, which is already bad enough, you know, like, you know, the kids, you know, doomed to die. And then he like, and, you know, it's got that. And then, you know, that there's something bad going to happen when he bites, when he's talking to Tomas and the, you know, the caves and he's like, yeah, come on back with me. And I'm like, no, damn it. You never tell him to come back. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> But then, like, it turns out Tomas is, like, this horribly tragic kid himself who's almost like a Santi character, yes. really. I mean, you know, he, he there really is a close similarity between the two of them. Because um, even though he's hideous in his appearance, like, he's, he was just a kid that, that was actually abused quite badly as a child. Yeah. I um, feel like this whole film, like, once you make it to the end of it, is just tragedy upon tragedy and everyone experiences it at some point being the dad being the last one you know when he comes to his realization yeah that she was right the entire time and that he he lost her and everything because he refused to believe her oh yeah if he would have stayed if he would have stayed there he could convince her not to do what she did but yeah he, he didn't um and then, of course, the horrible realization that the sound that she heard that she thought was a ghost banging on the wall was actually the poor child. Yeah, uh, trying Simone. to escape. Yeah. yeah, he was in the, he fell investigating, you know, Tomas's uh, little house, as he called it, which was basically a, a boarded up, which now that I bring that up is an interesting correlation of the changeling. The fact that the wall that led to the area where the kid was dead at was actually sealed off just like in the changeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so it actually has links to both films it really does and i'm just i'm just now realizing that too so oh my god so it's been a minute <laughs> since i've watched um the orphanage though um i saw the orphanage clearly before i ever saw the devil's backbone and i really liked that movie and like we mentioned earlier in this podcast clearly a guillermo del toro film although it, it's it is but it isn't I, I, well, no, because I feel like it goes way more tragic than he allows his movies to go. Yeah, and I guess it, it kind of because you think I don't know you think of Pan's Labyrinth, you think of other horror films he's made, and this was closer to what we saw in The Devil's Backbone. Yes, 
Um, I, I do want to throw out, though, that he did go on to do another ghost film uh, called Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. And that movie, to me, is not very good. It has an all-star cast, which is unfortunate. I mean, it has Jim Beaver in it, you know, a Bobby Singer fan. Yeah. Um, and it's got um, it's got Loki in it, you know, Tom Hiddleston. Uh, it's got the guy who played in um, uh, oh, what, the Sons of Anarchy, you know, that played the main character in that, you know, that everybody was hot for for a minute. Uh, Charlie Hunman, I believe is his name. Um but it's got these amazing actors in it, and it's got a bigger budget. I mean, obviously, because it was Del Toro, like, later on, whenever he, you know, established himself in Hollywood. But the heart's missing from the movie. Like, uh, every yeah. time I watch that movie, I keep trying to get into it, and, like, I'm so, like, just, like, so dull. Like, it's it's so, like, it's just lacking something. It doesn't have, like, I mean, you know, even, like, uh, you know, Hellboy. Like, it didn't have any of the passion, it didn't seem like. If it was, I, you know, it's not on screen like it was in those previous movies. Maybe those weren't his films. Because you can tell, there, you, when you say that there's no heart, well, those are films that he... He's the creator of them, but he didn't create Hellboy. And I don't know about the other film that you mentioned. I don't well, know. I'm not talking. No, he had he had passion in Hellboy. I'm talking about yeah. Crimson Peak. There's oh, no Crimson Peak. That's like, weird. It's like, yeah, it's like his movie, but like it's such a, I mean, and it's a gothic. It's another gothic uh, romance type, you know, like setting. Because, I mean, it's the ancient castle. It's the, you know, there's spirits there. It's like, it's more of a gothic romance than what Devil's Backbone is. Because, you know, like I said, he broke conventions with Devil's Backbone. Uh, setting at modern times, whereas Crimson Peak is actually set during the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So, I mean, it has like more of a link to the Victorian age. But like, there's just something. I mean, it should have been a perfect setup for him just knocked out of the park. But like, whenever you watch it, like the CGI ghosts are even like bad design. It's like it's like you did a great ghost with no budget and this devil's backbone. Why did you make these red like mist like? you know, or muddy messes that almost look like they're barely better than, you know, uh, what was in the Haunting of Hill house. Um, or, or no, uh, you know, it's the house on Haunted Hill. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, it, I don't know. It's just like all of it. It's just like, I, and I, you got all this great cast and like Tom Hiddleston, I could care less about it. And he doesn't have any of the, really the charm that he brings to like, you know, you know, any of the characters that, you know, like especially Loki that he's done. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an odd film and I don't know why I wanted to love it. Cause I was like, shit. Yeah. I mean, I'd already known about devil's backbone. And I was like, sign me up for Crimson's peak. I'm a Crimson peak. Cause I know that he can do this. And then when I watched it, I was like, did I just spend two hours watching this? What the, what, what did he do to this movie? I mean, okay. Um, well, one, do you think that it's same shit, different day? So he's done the story one too many times. And two, do you think he does better with like, well, okay. Mimic was one of the films he did, right? Um, Mimic was a film that he did. Okay, yes. he, had, he had big actors in that. Okay. I'm thinking like, does he do better with Spanish actors, I wouldn't say that because I, I do feel like Hellboy was like uh, I mean was really good and creative for what I mean yeah he was working somebody else's property but you could you could tell that he really like even like when he brought Seth MacFarlane in to do the character who's kind of like a ghost trapped in a robot's body like it he made Seth MacFarlane's like you know 
quirkiness, you know, work as the character. Like, I mean, it's, you know, he was almost doing like Klaus the fish as far as his accent in the movie, but like it, it worked. I mean, you know, for the character itself, like he, he made it work. It's just, but like, and that was the thing when I watched, I don't know why Crimson Peak is such a dud for me when I watch it. It just, it's, it's got everything there. It's like, I mean, it's like this uh, high rise building that looks like on the outside it's constructed perfectly, but you get inside and it's like, you know, got, I mean, it's falling apart. Like on the interior, there's, there's the story is just not as, you know, captivating as what he normally does. I don't yeah. know. I don't know what he did with it. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, we just sometimes, though, they they can't always have a big hitter, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I just, I, you know, but you figured that would have been like his big, you know, like the big thing for him to be able to really knock it out of the park. And I just don't understand why it didn't. You yeah. Know? Um, Anything else but- about the orphanage, though? Uh, Orphanage, I mean, like I said, I mean, it, it's it's a really good film, and I mean, it beats the shit out of Crimson Peak, so I mean, I highly recommend it. I mean, even if it is only tangentially related to Del Toro, I mean, it is, you can tell that he had some influence on it at some point in the creation. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but would you agree that the Orphanage was kind of a slow burn? Uh, it is, and I'm surprised you like it. I know that fact. I know I I liked it. I think maybe because the ending was such a um, I don't know. I don't know why it was so unexpected from me, and everything. And maybe it was just because there was just so much sadness that you know towards the end you're like, oh my god, this is horrific. You know, definitely falls into that horror genre because it's a horror of a of a different kind of a possibility. Sam's the ghost, you know, (laughs) of course, but like. Even if that kid wasn't chasing a ghost and he, he was like playing hide and seek and he fell down a set of stairs, you know, and and it just so happens that, you know, or well, no, it's not much so much fell down. But, yeah, he was trying to knock to get out. He ended up just dying, you know, because the mom doesn't well, no, know what's he going actually on. fell. There's uh, the banister leading yeah. up. The, the stairs broke and he fell and hit his head. And that, I mean, like Santi, I mean, in that yeah. sense, he, he actually, I mean, it doesn't show the same kind of fracture, but he, he hit his head falling and that's, you know, that's why, and he was trapped in the basement and that's why that, or, and they didn't know he was da- even down there. Yeah. I don't know. That's just, I mean, everything involved with it, you know, uh, it just gave it so much feeling to the movie. So I was just like, oh, my God, I've been watching all this, wondering what it leads up to. And what it led up to was was worth it. You know, it was definitely rewarding in the end. The one thing that I will, that I thought was interesting about it is the character of Tomas, where he has, like, the weird scarecrow-like yes. mask on. was interesting watching it and, you know, lie to the fact that Trick or Treat yes. is one of my favorite movies. And it's almost like Sam, you know, from Trick or Treat and him or like Kindred Spirits. And they came out the same exact year. Oh, my God. And, yeah, it was was creepy. That mask was creepy. And they even had like, if you watch it, like Tomas has the same. Because, like, one of the best things about Trick or Treat, and I love that movie so much, is that Sam being played by a real child. And you can tell he's a child just the way that he kind of moves because kids move different than adults, the way that their gait is. But not only that, but the way he breathes, you can kind of like just his whole body kind of moves. Yeah. The same thing with Tomas in the movie. It's the same kind of like little kid in a a mask. It's like he when he pulls his mask down, he's like, (sighs) you can like hear him like he's trying to get like some air behind the mask just like a kid would if he was wearing one of those. Yeah. (laughs) Great observation. (laughs) 